give that one to you first. <laughs> You're going to be okay. Do you want to put the books under your arm? Are we on? Hello, everyone. Thanks Hello. for uh, <laughs> coming out in the rain. Well, the rain stopped, so um, that, that's a good thing. How many people here saw Inna's show yesterday? Wasn't it amazing? She's, she's incredible. My name's Jane Cornwell. I, I was privileged to, enough to interview Inna in Paris for the Saturday paper and um, chat about her, her incredible life. Um, uh, I'm sure most of you know that Inna is a, a Malian-born singer, songwriter, and rapper. Um, she has an amazing album out at the moment called Motel Bamako um, and does lots and lots of, of different things. Um, she's an activist and an artist and um, an actor. Uh, and we'll be talking a bit in this talk about all that and, and we'll have 20 minutes at the end for questions which I encourage you to ask. So I sort of thought we might talk a bit about your background and, and we'll talk a bit about the, your musical background and, okay. and, and stuff first. So And then we'll move more into to the activism which is, I think, really, really important to talk about. So let's just talk about, maybe talk about your earliest musical memory and talk about growing up in Bamako and, you know, I was born and raised in Bamako, and I started doing music when I was 14. I, because before I, I loved to write, I was writing poetry. And at 14, I, I thought, oh, I love music, and I love writing, so maybe uh, I could write songs. And, and also at 14, I, I felt that it was cooler to be a musician than <laughs> a poet. And, um, and then at 15, I decided that I would go and knock at Salif Keita's door because I, I wanted someone to guide me because I don't come from a, a musician family and nobody was doing music. We were listening to a lot of music, but no, my parents are not musicians. So, so your dad was a, a diplomat and yes. you're one of seven kids. Yes. Yeah. Just positioning it, you know, getting contextualizing you for people gone, yes. And and then so I went to Salif's home and I knew that he was mentoring some other people and so I uh, I asked him to guide me a little bit and that's what he did and he was one of he was a very important person in my in my career and he was my first mentor. So you know, Salif Keita, the, the, the big Malian superstar, was a neighbour of Inna's growing up. And I guess that was a kind of diplomatic area you were living in. in no, in no, no, actually, it's a very... Actually, in Mali, we, we don't have... A you don't have read the, air, the posh area? No, 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 no. It's everybody lives together. You can have a, um, a musician, um, a farmer. Everybody lives together. I remember you saying that you know when you were there were sort of different influences musically you had because you had your dad's vinyl collection. So let's yes. talk a bit about that because when your father was growing up in the sixties, it was like swinging. Swinging Bamako was effectively like swinging London, wasn't it? Yes, so exactly. Let's talk a bit about you know all the different influences because you had your brothers and sisters' influence yes. uh, tastes and. My dad, my dad, like like you said, I like to call it swinging Bamako because it was exactly like in London or Paris. In, in Europe, and he was a big fan of Ray Charles, Nina Simone, Otis Redding, and so he had a huge collection, and he, he would play uh, music for us during the weekend, and, and so I, he would also tell us about the stories of those artists, and what I loved with, uh, with that is that it's not just about music, it's also about activism because Nina Simone was a huge activist yeah. and, and my mom was a great fan of Miriam Makeba who was also a great activist. So it was music but also speaking up for something that they were really passionate about. And then you had your, your sisters particularly. One was really into Madonna. Yes. Yeah. And there was she had the total look, even the haircut. It was... <laughs> Yeah. So all this stuff is going on, and, and you've said, I know um, Modja is a, is a, a pearl, a Fulani word? Yes. It's for, for cheeky girl, you know, naughty girl, because you had lots of energy. and. Yes, yes, I'm, I'm hyperactive. <laughs> and, and when you have seven kids, I'm number six, 
and I had a lot of energy and I wanted to know about everything. I was always blah, 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 blah. And so uh, my mom decided to give me that nickname and my, my brothers and sisters were totally agreeing with her. So they still call me like that. So when I decided uh, to choose an artist name, I, I thought that would be great. Yeah, well, it's, yeah, it certainly <laughs> sticks. So, so you, 14, you're, you're writing your own stuff, you're doing poetry, story, and you, you go, I remember you said you went and knocked on the door of Salaf Keita, and you were very nervous. Yes. And, uh, and he was very welcoming, wasn't he? You said he was building a studio at the time. Yes, and he's, he's impressive. I mean, I'm still very impressed by him. And when you're 15 and you go and knock at his door, I wasn't really sure about what I was doing, but I had prepared myself. I had recorded a tape. My dad offered me a tape recorder at that time, and I wrote the lyrics on it. So I was just going to give it to him and then leave. And then he said, well, I'm not going to listen to it. Sing. I was like, I wasn't expecting that. Well, I was 15. And, and then uh, I think he also was very amused by, by my courage and that I was, I was brave, but I was also shaken. And yeah, we're still, he knows that he's still one of my huge um, influence. And supporter, I'm sure. Yes. But he sent you to go and, um, Salaf Cater, I'm sure many of you know, had a band called the Super Rail Band, um, which were one of the big formative orchestras, really, of, of, um, of Mali at the time. Yeah. You know, he wasn't with them then, but he sent you to go and, and, and learn and study with Habib Koyate. And so let's talk a little bit about, about yes, that. Yes, because I didn't go to music school. I learned with the elders. And so I really learned music by being with them, working with them and, and listening and getting familiar with the instruments and what what it could do, the sounds and everything. And I'm a very, I, I'm a very geek, you know. I love the sounds when, that's why I spend so much time when I work on an album, my latest album, I spent three years working on it and just the sounds and, and so I, I was opening for, for Abib. I used to play at uh, Aquaba. He was doing that all the weekends and I used to open for him. I would sing a few songs before. And I remember that Abib gave me a, it was a cassette at that time he gave of the Beatles. And he said, okay, listen to this. And when you will understand this, you'll know how to write your own music, how to develop your, your, your music uh, songwriting skills. And I was very impressed by that because that was the Beatles. And well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I know we spoke about the fact that People are often surprised that that certainly Mali, Africa has this kind of these Western influences, you know, and and it was all pervasive then, really, wasn't it? There was there was lots of um, Western music being bought coming into the ports and all sorts. Yes, you know, we had this uh, traditional Malian music, which is very important to us, but we are very much open to the world. And in the 60s, the rail band they were influenced by Cuban music, and in Mali, there's a, there's well, you know, we are. We, we like to share and we like to collaborate and it's, uh, you learn also with others. So being open and, and bringing in imprint from uh, somewhere else, it's really important. So, so you worked with the rail band and you were doing a um, bit of uh, singer-songwriter stuff, acoustic stuff, but you said that really you felt like you had to leave Mali. You had, to, you had the European dream. So let's yes. talk a bit about that because it wasn't, you didn't actually go to Europe to learn music, did you? No, actually I went to study and to work. And, but for me it was an important step to, be, uh, to, go, to go abroad and learn, learn about life because I went all alone and I needed to have a chance to be who I am today. It was, at that time it was, I felt that it was impossible for me as a woman, as a young girl, to, to, to become an artist and to, to be able to live with my art. Why was that? Because it wasn't, the, the infrastructure wasn't in place or because you weren't from a griot family, you know, you weren't sort of traditionally uh, entitled as it were or, or, or that wasn't sort of part of your practice? Both, for both reasons. It's still very complicated for young Malian artists to, to, to be able to, to live with their art and to travel and to share their music. The, the structure are not, um, are not strong enough, you know. 
but we have amazing artists like Umu Sangare or Salif Keita who opened the door for us, or Ali Farkature. And so, but it's still very complicated for young artists to, to, to be able to travel with their music. So you went over to Paris and you studied business and you studied literature and yes. you were studying at two different institutions. So yes. you did it really did it hard, didn't you? And yes. you, you said that you um, uh, you were living in a uh, in digs and student digs and you yes. know it was you did the it was a freezing cold winter and then there was I no didn't have heat in my room. My room was basically <laughs> like you know this. It was very small. I was living on a campus and I it was the first time that I experienced winter. Because in Mali, it's 40 degrees. It's really hot. And so, it, yeah, it wasn't easy. But I learned from it, you know. And you become, I, at 19, I had to do everything on my own. And I became an adult. And I, I liked that. That was part of the, the freedom and the liberty that I was looking for. And it helped me to be stronger. And then, I feel like I'm doing this as your life. Well, I am doing this as your <laughs> life, aren't I? And then you, um, you were... Uh, well, scouted. You, you, you were spotted by a model scout, and and uh, you know be, became a model. And you were, suddenly your whole life changed. In in you know went off in a different direction, didn't it? Yes, actually, because I come from a big family, and even though my dad was a diplomat, but he was a diplomat from Mali, and we didn't have a lot of money, so I had to be independent to pay for my studies and to pay for for my life. And so I went to I I gave my resume to fast foods and stores, closed stores, but nobody called me, nobody was hiring me. So I, I, was really, I was really scared because I didn't know how to pay for everything. And so one day I was at uh, a cinema with my friends and this lady came to me and she gave me her card. And I wasn't expecting to become a model because I'm not that tall and I didn't feel that I was really girly, you know? I was more like a tomboy and and so I was very surprised, and then I, um, I said, okay, maybe if this is a way to have to to earn money and to pay for everything, I'll do it. And it was actually it was fun. I didn't want to do it all my life because I, I wasn't committed enough. But you went off to New York, didn't you, and, and Washington, yes. and you did the runways and the big photo shoot, you know, and you were uh, the face of a hair care line in, in yeah, France. Yeah, I was uh, the face of L'Oréal for almost five years, but I wasn't expecting any of that. I really, it was, it just came to me, and I said, okay, why not? And it, L'Oréal, I also accepted because um, people like me, who look like me with my skin tone and my hair texture were not really represented. And I felt that it would be good for, for young girls or little girls to, to have someone that looks like them. And because a lot of people, now a lot of mom, moms come to me and say, ah, my, my daughter finally accepts her hair texture and, and she, she's, she's proud of it now. So that was really, Something that I liked about that. But on the side, you were you were you have a real knack for songwriting, and you know certainly your your first uh, songs, which we'll talk about in a sec, you know showed that. But you were writing songs for other people, hits for other people on um, labels like Warner France, and and uh, so let's talk a little bit about the the songwriting stuff and how you gradually decided to, to go back into doing, you were doing acoustic stuff, you taught yourself guitar off the internet. Yes, actually I was writing for different artists and I really loved that because it was, it was fun, you know, you just project yourself in somebody else's shoes and you, you don't take any risk actually, because I was, uh, I didn't, I wasn't, um, I wasn't ready to put myself out there and, and share my music because I felt that I had a lot to learn. But writing was something that I wanted to, to do for a while. I've been writing all my life. And, and when I felt ready, I was 25 years old and I decided, okay, I've been writing for a lot of people and I feel like I'm ready to do something. But um, I wanted to do something very acoustic, very, very, yeah, acoustic. Mm. But then, so you, then you released your first album in 2009, didn't yes. you? And you released it through... Well, you, re you recorded it yourself and then released it through Warner France. Um, 
But then that was a sort of acoustic stuff. And then you went into much more poppy. Um, yes. Uh, there's a great, I don't know if you, any of you have seen Inna's track called uh, French Can Can. And it's just, it was a massive hit in France. And what I love about it, and um, I don't even know if you can tell, tell us if this was intentional, was that, that it's sort of subverting these cliches of the Moulin Rouge and the, the Can Can and the, all the really sort of cliches of France. And to have an African immigrant do this, I think, was kind of incredibly subversive. And, and uh, I don't know if it came across like that. So let's talk a little bit about that. Actually, I... After my first album, we had a uh, great reviews in the medias, and and it was it was really nice, but it it was still very intimate. And I remember that um, I wanted to write a French song because I wasn't writing in French, and and so I thought, ah, oh, when I think about France, what kind of image do I have? And it was like you said, French Cancan, Moulin Rouge, and uh, the Eiffel Tower, and and so. One night, I, w I couldn't, I had insomnia. I wasn't sleeping in. I said, okay, I'm going to write this song. I had this melody. And, and so I, I wrote the song in English and in French. But really, I wasn't expecting anything. In the morning, I went into the studio. I recorded it, and then I, I just sent it to my label. And they came back to me and saying, ah, do, when can you record the, you know, because it was a demo track. And I said, well, I don't know. I have some other things to do, but I can do it. And they wanted to, s they sent the demo track to the radio stations and they wanted to play the demo tracks. And I was like, no, absolutely not. I'm going to, uh, to, to, to do something m more, you know. And basically a lot of radio stations, they, they broadcasted the, the demo track and it was played everywhere. Uh, it was yeah. like number one for I don't know how many weeks. And, and one it new um, revelation of the year at the Victoire de la Musique, which is like the, the sort of French Aria Awards, you know. Yeah, it was... Well, the album. Very yeah. surprising. But the thing is that I didn't really know how, how big it became because I, was, I went back into working on my album and into the studio, and then I left for two months during the summer. And when I came back, I remember I was in Croatia. I was sitting on the beach... And I, I was like, ah, oh, I know this song. A song was playing on the radio, and I was like, I know this song. And I look at my, my boyfriend, and we were like, really? Seriously? What's happening? And then I went back to, to France, and in the streets, people were talking to me, and I was like, oh, they're really nice to me. What's happening? And actually, because I, I don't like to know how much I'm selling or because I don't want that to define me as an artist. So I wasn't really uh, asking my label how it was going. I didn't want to, I didn't want to have the talk about you know, sales and, and numbers. And so I really measured everything that was going on with how, how much people were stopping me in the streets. And and then I toured for two years with that album. We did like over 200 gigs with that, and it was it was really fun. But it was fun. It wasn't you know it wasn't defining me completely. What I think is is what struck me when we were speaking in, in uh, when we met in Paris was how you were uh, you had the you very much kept your activism, which we should start talking about, and your musical career very separate. You know you wanted to wait until. I just thought that was remarkable that to sort of have that foresight to wait until you had a big enough audience and a big enough platform to then introduce your activism into your music. But it was in a way the French can can kind of forced your hand. You know, suddenly you were massive and and you know you had to almost kind of take the plunge. So let's talk a little bit about about your your causes, which I know are women's rights. Um. Yes, I've been an activist for twelve years now about women issues and gender equality and also against female genital mutilations. And I started when I was 19, because when I went to, to Europe, I, I realized how different I was as a, as a young adult. And, and that actually, it was complicated because in Mali, 90% of women and girls go through female genital mutilations. And I went through it myself. You were um, four years old, taken by your grandmother's sister, um, kind of uh, behind your parents' back. Really. Yes, because my, my, my dad and my mom are feminists, really. They, they are against female genital mutilations. And my mother uh, was a midwife, so she knew what female genital mutilation does to women's body. 
And so, but I still, I was taken when my mom was out and they mutilated me. So when I went to Europe, I realized how different I was and what that really meant for me as I was becoming a woman. So it, it, it crushed me. It was really difficult. So I started to, to be involved in activism and uh, because for me it was a way to, to, to do something for the little girls who, who were, you know, who, who could go through that same experience. So, and when you, when you start to get involved in uh, violence against women, you, you start to notice that there are different kind of violence and, and so I became a strong activist. But I didn't want, I wanted it to be very separate from my music because I wanted people, um, I wanted to protect the, the, the issues that I was talking about. I didn't want to just speak about it in my music because I felt that uh, it was too important to me um, to, to have it on my musical platform. And also because there is a backlash that goes with it. When you are an activist and when you are a feminist, it, it's not very well seen. So um, I felt that I wasn't strong enough to, to, to face the backlash. I wanted people to, know, to get to know me. And, but I was very active in, on, the, on the ground, you know? So you had, m uh, while your sort of popularity was going on with French Cancan on the, on the well, with another hat on, you'd, you were making documentaries about, we'll call it an acronym FGM, um, you know, and, and you had said that, you know, uh, and I know that you, um, there's quite a sort of network, quite a strong network um, anti-FGM, anti you know, but that you had been trolled online, you had been stopped on the street. I still you am. know, Really? Okay. Yeah, I still am, you know. Every time that I, I, I talk about female genital mutilations, when I talk about gender equality, and I receive, you know, Today it's really easy to be in contact with people on internet. You just have to write them, you know, a DM or, and I still have messages, uh, hate messages and insults and, and you know, threats, but that's, that goes with it. I don't know any activist um, that is really active, you know, on the field that doesn't get threatened or, or insulted or at one point or another. And just yesterday I, I was on, I, I did um, um, something with the French TV and it was uh, broadcasted yesterday and this morning when I woke up I had messages, you know, but that goes with it. But now I felt that I'm strong enough to deal with the backlash because I, people know me, they know my work, they get to know me personally through my um, personal experience and they understand where, where it comes from. So, uh, I think it was February last year, you were um, uh, a representative at the first ever US summit to end uh, female genital mutilation. Um, and I know that, that the aim, well, let, let's talk a little bit about statistics, I suppose. I mean, I think it's 200 million women and girls that are affected. Yes, uh, 200 million women and girls affected who went through female genital mutilations in the world. And it's not just happening in Africa, it's in Africa, but also in countries like Indonesia. And it happens also in Europe, uh, in the United States, in South America. And so it's, with the United Nations, there, there are programs everywhere in collaboration with governments all around the world to, to end FGM in 2030. So that's, that seems long, but it's actually a really short time because there's nothing more difficult to change than mentalities. I think, well, let's talk about the fact that you've said it's, you, you can't really ban a ritual. You know, that's the, it's something that's so ingrained and, and you talk about alternatives, you can present alternatives, so. Yes, I think it's really important to, to because it, female genital mutilation happens because of ignorance, because of all the, everything that people believe that, uh, some people believe that it will prevent women to, to, um, to be, to be in pain, uh, you know, in villages when, where women have to walk long distance to go and get water, to go and, and, and work in the fields. Uh, it prevents some pain because of the walking. Some people think that it's uh, a masculine part in the women that they have to cut it away. It's just crazy beliefs. And so you have to educate people, you have to speak with them, 
but also uh, there should be laws to go with it. It's something that goes together. And for me, um, we're actually right now speaking about a law in Mali, and it's not going to be easy, but I'm, I'm very active on that, and, and things have to change, really. You spoke about, um, uh, well, you told me about presenting sort of girls and women with different kind of sorority rituals. Yes. So I think we, we have beautiful traditions and because the, the tradition of female genital mutilation, it's also about girls becoming women. And I think that we can have alternative traditions to, to, to respect that and to, to bring little girls to explain to them, to, to teach them what womanhood is, and we can change it. We have to, because we don't have to destroy a woman's body to, to help her to become a woman. That's crazy. doesn't make sense. Craziness. Um, there's a, you were telling me about the, the, I think it's really interesting, there's a, a, a wing in, of a hospital in France that you helped um, build, uh, Maison de Femmes, so the House of Women. And so let's talk a bit about that, about what you're doing there on the ground in, in Paris. Actually, um, I have a, a good friend who's the, who's the head of the maternity uh, of that hospital, and she, she wanted to build that house for women, a safe place where women can come and, and have guidance and help and medical help. And so she asked me if I wanted to join her with that, and we... She was the doctor? She's the, a doctor, yes, a gynecologist. Yeah. And, uh, and she also repairs FGM. She does the operation. So, so yeah, I, I said yes, I believe that we could do it. And it took four years to have all the money. I remember she, she, she showed me a parking lot, and she said, this is going to be the place. And I was like, we were both watching the, the cars and everything and trying to imagine. And, and now we have the house. We are welcoming women. I have a group talk every month where we, we have women coming and you know, just speaking about their own experience and we are all sharing our talking because I think that speaking up and sharing your story is the beginning of healing. And for me, um, I thought when I started the group talks, I wanted to share my own experience and show to these women that you don't have to remain a victim. You can become a survivor. And that I wanted to show them that I have uh, a similar story, but I'm trying to move on. I'm, I'm, I'm fighting. I became resilient and I wanted to show them how strong they could be and that they could become whatever they wanted to be. But then after a few months speaking with these women, I realized that it was something that was really helping me to, to share my experience, to speak with them, to, to, to get out some things that I still had inside. And so it's, yes, they, I'm helping them, they're helping me. It's a, it's sorority for me is, it's, it's the future. Women coming together and, and moving forward, it's really important. How much has, has all of this, I mean, clearly it's, it's helped you feel stronger and it's, it's been cathartic. Back to the music, how much has it changed your songwriting and the way you're, you, you uh, are performing? You know, certainly the songs on Motel Bamako, some of them are, they're, they're quite staunch in terms of um, issues and, and, and viewpoints. Before, uh, in my music, I used to talk about other people's story. I used, I define myself as a storyteller, story so... I was talking about other people, but when you speak about your own experience, what you're going through, it becomes even more passionate and even more uh, torn and more troubled and more, more intense. And, and with my country going through war and what's been going on in Mali for the past five years, uh, we've been facing terrorism, we've been facing um, the lack of freedom, you know, and violence in the north of Mali. And knowing Where that- your family from? Originally. Yes, yes, my family is from the north of Mali. We still have a, a big part of our family there. And so it was a moment when, as an artist, when you, when you just take your pen and write, it's, it's your own story, it's your people's story. It's something that you, you it's very difficult to, to not be, you know, um, I don't know the word in English. It's... Yeah, it still touches me a lot. Yeah. 
I mean, last night you were, you were talking about the um, being an immigrant and and being very touched by the sort of the the, the the boat people, as it were, the, the boats that capsized off the island in Italy. And, you know, it just seems like you're much more willing to kind of touch on issues that are affecting the world, really, yes. and not just the sort of French cancan. Oh, no, 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 no. French cancan actually was a big surprise for me, and it was just one song on my old album, but, you know, it's, it helped me a lot. It gave me a lot of love from the people. But um, this these issues are something that I've been... You know, I know about that. I know about the lack of clean water because I myself, uh, when I used to go to my grandmother's place in Mali, uh, she did she didn't have a tap. We had to go and buy water to 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 cook, to drink, for everything. And I know people who still today in Bamako don't have access to clean water. And and. I'm an immigrant and seeing people coming, getting on those boats and trying to get to Europe, because Europe is a kind of El Dorado to us. It's, it's the way to have a better life and knowing that people are fleeing their homes and getting on those boats and not knowing if they would ever make it. It's something that horrified me because hope is what always driven me. I didn't have anything else than hope. It's the most powerful thing. And and the lack of hope make that those people go into those boats. Some perish, some never make it. Some arrive, some die on the beaches. Like this baby that I, I still have the image in my head uh, coming from Syria. So it's something that it it moved me a lot. So I wrote that song. I was watching the news and I I saw that 500 people died in the sea and. I wrote that song, and I didn't expect that three years later it would be worse, that there would be hundreds of thousands of people coming from the Middle East, coming from Africa and trying to get to Europe. There's a serious crisis in the world, and I feel like everywhere that I look, the world is kind of burning or having issues that are so... Um, it's a, we, we are, I feel that now we are at a turning point and we have to make a choice which way we, we are going to decide to go and all together. It's not just African issues or Middle East issues, it's our issues, it's the issue of everybody. We have to decide what this world is going to be because um, in some parts of the world you don't have to see it because you, you, you don't experience it, but it exists and and we all are part of the history. So you've got your music and, oh, yes, indeed. <laughs> um, interesting, let's talk about Wulu, Wulu, your, your latest, your, the film you're doing, which has been called a uh, kind of African Scarface. Um, but it's set, well, let, let's, in, you know, you, you tell us about it. But I just think it's very interesting because, again, it's kind of you're sneaking your activism in there or, or it dovetails with your activism. Yes, I, I wanted, I didn't want to, to, to do uh, a movie just to, to do a movie. I didn't want to be an actress just for the sake of being an actress. I wanted something, a project that uh, passionates me and that I feel a connection with. And so when I when I they sent me this scenario about uh, a brother and a sister who were born and raised in Mali and trying to climb the social ladder uh, with their own ways, different, very different ways, because uh, my character uh, used to uh, to be a, a prostitute to take care of herself and her younger brother, and he was uh, a young. Uh, not a bus driver, but he was working on um, ground transportation and trying to make it. And I was really, I felt that I knew that story because I saw people who were struggling like that. I, I saw people who had to take very bad decisions just to survive. And also in the film, they speak about um, the drug trafficking that's happening in the north of so Mali. So he becomes a drug trafficker, doesn't he? He becomes yeah. a, dog, a drug trafficker. And and she 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 becomes a, a socialite who who enjoys the money that her brothers brings in, and 
This is actually, a, it's, it's, uh, there's a French film festival on at the moment, sort of touring the different cities, but it's on, it's on kind of this month in various cities. Yes, I think that in Adelaide it's going to start uh, uh, at the end of the month, the 30th of March. Okay. And, and yes, yeah, so uh, I felt that the film was going to tell stories of people that I felt connected with. I, I didn't experience that myself, but I knew um, girls who had to take those decisions, you know, and without no judgment, I just wanted to be part of telling the stories of these people. And we, we spoke about the, the north of Mali as this kind of, it's not really written about so much, is it? It's this kind of vast, lawless area where a lot of, well, you, you tell everybody, where the planes come in with a lot of... Um yes, actually, in, in the Sahara in Mali, uh, a Boeing, a huge plane, uh, landed with tons of cocaine coming from Colombia, and then they just took the drugs, and the crew and the plane just disappeared. They burned the plane, actually. And so Mali, the north of Mali, has become a huge platform of drugs, and nobody's speaking about it. And that led also to the to the meltdown of the country. It's funding lots of jihadism. It's funding the terrorism. So the film is also talking about that, and I wanted, I, I, I felt that it was really important to talk about that because we speak about terrorism, but we don't speak about how it's financed. And the fact that it's drugs, it's really scary because that means that they are very strong because they have money to, to keep on uh, doing it. We also spoke about how you cope with a lot of this stuff is by having a good laugh and that you're, um, you were in a comedy series on, on uh, Canal, Canal Plu for, for a long time, weren't you? What, what yes. was that? You did, it was a sketch show. Yes, actually it was um, uh, a short format that they had in Le Grand Journal, which was a very, um, very watched um, TV show. And so I was with five other members and we were doing comedy shows and it was really funny for me because um, I'm an activist. I speak about a lot of serious things, but I, I love to have a good laugh too, so yeah. <laughs> and also I remember you saying that when you first started, you had to try and tell people that you weren't French, you were actually African. A yes. lot of people were just, you know, why aren't you doing world music? Um, so let's talk about that and, and go come back to Bamako and swinging Bamako in the 60s, but now Bamako is just like a plugged-in city like Adelaide, Melbourne, London, you know. So I think people are realising that, but maybe not, not as much as they should be. Yes, I think that um, we know we sent men uh, to the moon. We know what's going on on the moon, but we don't really know what's going on in Africa. There are so many clichés. We think some people have ask me if we live in trees or if we live, you know, and if we have real cities. And so I, we have internet, we have, we travel like everybody and we, we kind of live like everybody. And so for me, it was really important to, to, to show what Africa really is. And, and the fact that people were assuming that I'm French because uh, my music is modern. That felt crazy to me because they were assuming that uh, if you if you ha are so modern, that means that you are from not from Africa. Mm. But I was born and raised in Bamako, and actually there is a lot of culture there. It's uh, like you were saying in swing in Bamako, we had uh, photographers like Malik Sidibe, Seydou Keita, amazing artists, photographers. Uh, poet. Your sister's an amazing designer, fashion designer. Oh, thank you. Yes, yes, she is. She, she, she loves to, to, to take uh, traditional materials and and design them into something very modern. Let's talk about the hip hop culture because that's massive in in uh, in Bamako. I mean, it's a real thing. And you, when you started off, you you met the hip hop, one of the biggest hip hop acts in Mali called King, and yes. he was a. Let's just talk about how that. And I know every, if everyone see, who have seen you, you know, you rap in 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 uh, uh, Bambara, um, yes. you know, which is your native language, which is very lends itself very much to that sort of very forceful kind of staccato that you know. I actually met uses. King at Salif Keita's house. And he, he was doing hip hop and that blew my mind because I, I had heard hip, you know, in the 90s, uh, all these American hip hop artists and, and he was doing that in Bambara. 
and I was really shocked because I never thought about it. But then we had long conversations. He was, he was, he's still a very good friend of mine, and and we just we were just talking on how different the issues that the young African Americans had, and that we had. It was completely different. We were having different lives. So we thought, okay, hip hop is really um, a genre of activism. You know, they were speaking about social issues, but their social issues, that was very different from ours. And we thought, okay, maybe we should bring it into our own world with our own sound and language and, and make it our own. So I started uh, to learn how to rap in Bambara actually when I was 15. And a lot of people were very surprised because they, they didn't expect me to rap, but it's not something that I learned like this. I, I, I did it before. And uh, I suppose people would be surprised to see you do Buffalo Stance by, by <laughs> Nina Cherry, you know, last night, which was great. But I love the fact you kind of, you've, you've got the Tamar, the talking drum in there. And yes. So just just talk a bit about that, that sort of you, you really gave it the Malian treatment, you know. Yes, yes. I love Nana Cherry. She's, she was... She was I here last year, actually, with, with oh your really? student door. They kind of got back together on stage. Oh, know. I love her. I, I discovered Nana Cherry when I was, I think, eight or nine. And I, I, I've been a huge fan since. And I loved what she... She's actually African. And I loved uh, yeah, what she was Ghanaian, bringing. Think, yeah. And as a, as a girl who was doing hip-hop and who had all this... Um, yeah, she has a slick tongue, and I love that about her. And and so growing up, I always used to sing this, her songs, and so um, I incorporated it in my music, in my life set. And and uh, you also use the voice of Umu Sangare, who's, uh, a, yeah. as you say, a big sister to you, and, yes. and who I'll be actually speaking to tomorrow here. Um, but, you know, Umu is, is another incredible woman who has, yes. you know, really been... Um, Blazed a trail, hasn't she, for, for lots of Malian yes. women? I mean, just uh, incredible. completely. She she, the issues that she talks about in her music are so important. She speaks about uh, marriage. She speaks about arranged marriage. Women, yeah. yeah, arranged marriage. She speaks about uh, women's right, and she's been doing it forever. I remember the first time that I heard her song. I was a teenager, and the the way she she was sharing her concerns about uh, the. Um, the status of women in Mali, it, it's just, it was just so beautiful and so powerful. And she still does it. And so she opened the door for, for us uh, uh, younger, younger women to, to, to be feminist in real life, but also in our music. And uh, just on that, before I, uh, we've got about 15 minutes for questions, but feminism, you're a feminist. I'm a feminist. It's you know. My dad is a feminist. My boyfriend is a <laughs> feminist. We, feminism doesn't come with a, with gender. I mean, it's just about equality, and and it's something that is really important now because um, when the world is in crisis, it's the moment where we have to be very careful because we as women, I'm not sure that we. Well, I'm sure that we still don't have gender equality. N nowhere in the world. Even not here, I'm sorry. But it's the moment for us to, to, to be careful to keep the rights that we have and to, to, to have more rights again and to become equal to men. It's really important. And it's something that is important for women, but also a lot of men. I mean, I hope. Yeah. Na Absolutely. So who's got some questions for Inna? We've got some. Uh, we've got some roving mics, I think, somewhere. Um, she's got answers. There's the <laughs> question. <laughs> Thank you. I just didn't catch the name of the film that's going to be on at the French Film Festival. It's called Wulu. W U L U. Hello again, Inna. Um, I'm sure you um, probably didn't have time to talk about it, but you've been part in a very small way of a uh, project called Les Amazons d'Afrique, yes. of which you joined a whole bunch of other well-known and not so well-known uh, female singers. Um, can I have your thoughts on the sorts of collaborations that happen with uh, musicians and DJs in getting together this sort of a project and what you think about it? Um, I, I love all the women who are part of Les Amazons d'Afrique. They are women that I admire 
then they have uh, we did a, a, a small tour last summer with it's Mariam isn't it from Amadou and Mariam and well not anymore but Umu was part of it Umu, Mariam and, and Mama Niketa started it and then Umu left and it's a kind of circling you know uh, I was part of it for a small time. We did some shows together. We did Walmart UK together. And, and they are amazing um, musicians, amazing um, women rights activists and champions and from different generations. And I, I, I love them all. I felt that I didn't really belong there permanently because uh, I have my own voice, I'm doing other things, and I, I wish them the, the best because they are, they are the best, really. Got a question down the front here? Hi, thanks so much for sharing about your life. It, it's a very cosmopolitan story of your upbringing that you've told us, uh, and yet being Malian is also very important. Can you tell me a little bit about your sense of the value of maintaining those traditions, the culture of where you've come from versus the way we, in a sense, need to be internationalists as well. A little bit about that tension. Well, you know, I, I grew up in a very Malian family, but uh, my parents were also very... Um, they felt it was really important for us to know what's going on outside of Mali, so we... We, we read a lot, we, we watch a lot of movies from foreign countries and for me living half, my, half of my time in Mali and living also in Europe is a way to have a perspective. It's a way to, to, to keep my culture but to evolve. I love to travel because every time that I go somewhere I learn from other people and so that's, I, I grew up like that even though my family, they are still very traditional. But I think traditions are great, but you don't have to, uh, well, the good traditions are good, but you, you don't have to stay, I mean, we live in a very modern world now. You, you, being Malian defines you by something, so I keep what uh, suits me, and I leave the rest uh, away. Oh, another question? So what, oh, there's one there. Were you speaking of uh, Nana Cherry when you said she was a slick tom? Was that the word? Tongue, tongue. tongue. Slick yeah. tongue. Yeah, yeah. Very nice, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Another question down the front here. Hi, I just want to know what other music gives you goosebumps. Sorry? I just want to know what music gives you goosebumps. That I? That gives you goosebumps. What, what are you listening to that really excites oh, you? Oh, I, I, I love to listen to Tupac and the, <laughs> yes, and, and the, the 90s hip-hop scene, you know. And I love to listen to classical music. I'm actually working on a project with Andrew De Reeder, who's a... Uh, classical composer, a German, and I, I love to listen to different kind of music because this is how I learn how to do music, and yeah, but Tupac is on my top ten list. <laughs> I'm, is there anyone else? Oh, there's one down the back. I'm formulating lots of questions myself, but that's okay. Hi, just quickly, I was just Hello. curious, when you get backlash on Twitter, is it from men or women? Or even backlash about being uh, an activist fighting against um, female genital mutilation? Well, Where is it coming from? A lot of men. A lot of men. Um, a lot of men from African descent. But I also have a lot of love from men, African men, you know, who supports that, uh, the view that I have that women are equal and that uh, violence against women like female genital mutilation has to stop. But yes, I have. I I had some women too, and telling me how I should be ashamed of myself about uh, speaking on something so intimate and so kind of. They felt that I was betraying them with the fact that I was picking up against female genital mutilation and that I was doing it with uh, Western people. Uh, 
Another question? You know, we were talking about um, your acting career and you said that there's another film coming up. Because I know you've just been in Brazil and New York before here, but you, there's a Brazilian filmmaker you, you're going to be working with. Tell us about that and what's the film? Yes, I'm actually working with uh, Joseph, who's a British and Nigerian filmmaker, and Fernando Mereles, who's a Brazilian director. And we are working on a documentary which is going to be about the Great Green Wall. It's a project that started uh, 10 years ago. They planted trees all along the Sahel to prevent desertification and help to stop the Sahara to, you know, uh, to move, uh, to become the bigger. To stop yes. Yeah, yeah. And so it's uh, about climate change. It's also a musical journey, and it's about telling my story. And so um, all along the way, I'm going to travel all along uh, the Great Green Wall and, and, and see... Uh, meet people who, who live there and and share their stories too. So it's something that is really important for me because climate change is real. And especially now that some important people are denying it, it's, it's really, we have to do something for the future generations because we cannot just, we cannot destroy the place where we live. It's, it's really important to, to, to do something. It's a great image, isn't it? Uh, uh, green wall of, of trees and I, I think I read that at the end there's going to be a big concert. Um, is there as with Yeah, we're thinking about uh, collaborating with other artists and, and maybe at the end have a, a, a big concert like a big party and inviting people to come join us and, and use their voices to, to, to speak about climate change because uh, a lot of people who live in those areas doesn't have voices to, to, to speak on the issue and they are they are the first concern, you know? Um, speaking of, of images, another thing that Inna does, she's just non-stop, um, <laughs> is uh, she loves traveling. And um, you recently, I think in India, I was seeing, if you, if you go on her website or, or follow her on Twitter, just gets, she gets around to these incredible places. Um, but I, I, I'm not sure what the name of your project is, but she, she does these, with her partner, uh, Marco, do, do, do these great angel wings on walls. And let's, let's just tell everybody a bit about what, what that project is. It's just gorgeous. Yes, actually my partner is a filmmaker, but also uh, an artist. He paints and draws a lot. So we decided to, to have a positive project and uh, that interacts with people. So he draws this amazing wings, uh, bird or angel wings that we, we it's kind of um, street art, but uh, it's, it, it makes sense when somebody's really standing in front of the wings. Uh, and it looks like they're all yes. part of them, yeah. And we started it in Bamako because uh, we started it during the Biennale of the photography. We wanted art to go to the streets. We wanted people to interact with art because uh, we felt that they they were not part of you know La Biennale because they were not especially so going to museums behind closed doors in galleries yes. and things. And so we we did that in Bamako and then we travelled it. We went to Cihuatanejo in Mexico. Uh, that was sacred first city of peace in uh, Latin America, and and so we did that there. We went to Slovenia where they built they had. Um, done a refugee camp, and so we did it for the refugee camp. And so, so we've been so you traveling basically, with you have people p posing in front and take, take the photographs and kind of exhibit yes, the photographs, is that? And we've been documented it because we, it's really, um, it's funny how people, when, when you speak with people and ask them what are their hopes, what they're hoping for, uh, they are not really, a lot of people don't hope so big but when you ask them, if you had wings, if you could do whatever you wanted, what would you do? And they say their deepest hopes, but actually they, it can become a project, you know? Give us an example of what, what sort of hopes have people expressed? Well, we had, we had uh, a young girl who was uh, selling um, tafia, I don't know the world, you know, um, eventail. Oh. <laughs> well, she was selling some things in, in the streets in Bamako and we asked her what she wanted and she wanted to have a stall in the market and I felt that she could do it if she just believed in herself and so it's bringing hope and something positive to people and having them be believing themselves.
and it's we usually have a very uh, beautiful reaction when they see themselves in front of the the wings and any more questions we're gonna have to wind up soon there's one down there the lady in the purple where's our mic oh Um, I'm interested in um, the fine line between trying to preserve your traditional cultures that you want to keep alive from Mali, but also obviously trying to fight things like femi um, female genital mutilation um, and how you negotiate that in your activism because obviously people want to keep... I'm keep really tradition. sorry, I can't hear you very well. Oh, that's okay. Yeah, um, I'm interested in how you negotiate trying to keep traditions alive from Mali while also trying to end... Um, for example, female genital mutilation and how you negotiate that in how, in what you express, yeah, through your art and through your activism. Well, traditions are, female genital mutilation for a long time was considered tradition, so nothing was done to stop it, really. But now that it's defined as violence against women, it's defined as uh, abuse against women, it's easier to just, you know, uh, fight against it. For me, uh, traditions are beautiful when they 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 help society to to evolve, and when they help people coming together and, and doing something positive for not just uh, uh, communities but for the human race. And I think that traditions that are uh, that are threats for for people or violent against people, we have to we have to ban that. And in my music, I for me, it's really clear. Uh, female genital mutilation is not a is not uh, considered as a tradition. It's it's abuse. It's really um, something terrible that has to stop. Who was the writer? Was it? How do I say his name? The, one of your famous uh, favorite writers, rather, and he was a Malian ambassador, cultural ambassador, and, and one of his famous sayings was. Um, in Mali, when an old man dies, it's like a library burning. Yes, Amadou Ampateva, he's an amazing author and poet and activist in Mali. And he, um, it's true that we have this oral tradition and it's pretty much alive in Mali. And it's really important to, to keep that because it's really beautiful and it helps us to tell our stories and to become storytellers. Yes, when an old man dies, it feels that you, you, you destroy libraries because before we didn't have writings. It was all oral. All oral tradition, yeah. Final question, anyone? Or I'll ask it. Oh, there we go. <laughs> uh, where's the mic? I think she's run off. Just yell at her. It's amazing, isn't Thank it? You. Yes. <laughs> Thank why you. Why is Mali? Much. Why does it have such great music? What? What? You know, because it's the. I really don't know. I really don't know. I think that we love our music, and every generation we 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 are very um, active in protecting the heritage that we have, and but I don't know what's in the water. <laughs> Go there Thank and, you. and drink it and see. <laughs> Let's give a huge round of applause to Inamoja. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me.